Hello everyone, my name is Michael Hickens, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. Hi everyone, and welcome to another edition of But I Digress, and uh, with me today is Sarah Kornfeld. Sarah is an American author, a playwright, and producer born and raised in the experimental theater of New York City. Her debut novel, What Stella Sees, was published in 2018 to high critical praise in the United States and the UK. Um, Her most recent book, The True, has just been published in English, Romanian, and French. Three separate editions with three separate endings. A box set of all three editions will be available in early December, and you can find a link to order that in the description of this podcast. And I want to thank Sarah for being here um, in all senses of the word. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Sarah, as, um, as you probably know, um, this podcast is about writing and not writing <laughs> and everything in between. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's, it's about how we find our way in the world as writers. Um, and... I find it really interesting. You're the founder of a company, Rising Media Research, which is based in San Francisco, um, which is a market research and consulting company. Um, it's not, I don't think it's not, a tra- I don't think it's a tr- traditional consulting company, um, especially because it serves particularly the ecosystem of what you call the creative economy. So museums, policymakers, guilds, cultural institutions, a kind of ecosystem of creative people, creative institutions, et cetera. Um, I guess my question to start with is, you know, we all have, um, many of us, myself included, have day jobs at tech companies or um, at a Starbucks or as proofreaders at large white shoe law firms back in the old days. you have a day job that seems intricately and intimately interwoven with your writing. It seems like you could have chosen any other direction for a consultancy and it would have worked out. Why did you pick this type of consulting firm? You got it. Okay. So to answer that question, I need to talk to you a little bit about growing up in the theater. Okay. Because I grew up in a wild, wonderful, nutty time in American theater and American art and American painting and American jazz and American dance. Um, I was born in 1968, but my dad had already been the uh, managing director of a theater called the Living Theater, Mm -hmm. wild theater that eventually had to move to Europe because they were so outrageous that the, you know, the government pushed them out. And then my dad became the artistic director of a theater called the, the Judson Poets Theater. And that's in a church called Judson Church <clears throat> that sits on Washington Square Park sorry, in, in Greenwich Village within walking distance to everything. And my mm-hmm. dad returned from the war and he went to Greenwich Village in the, in the late 1950s, which as you know, was, was happening, right? Um, and they had returned, he had, he had been stationed in Dachau actually during the Korean War and came back very traumatized. Um, and that world was very interconnected so that the dancers of the Judson Dance Theater were in the basement. My father's theater was in the middle. It was a poet's theater. So it, 
it worked with poets and playwrights, Maria Irene Forness, and then it also did a lot of Gertrude Stein, and it, it had a world that was um, moving through different genres. It also was within blocks of La Mama Theater. It was in within blocks of the Ridiculous theatrical, com theatrical Company. It was in blocks to painters. It was within blocks to the jazz musicians. So at that time, it was a it was a real community. And the person who I always admired the most was the poet Frank O'Hara. And Frank O'Hara is this great, great poet, but he was also a curator for the Museum of Modern Art. He's really the person who brought the Spanish uh, modernist shows to America for the first time. So in my world growing up, everyone did everything. I mean, you know, directors were also writers and writers were performers and producers were also, you know, dancers. So it was not an industry. It was the avant-garde off-off Broadway world. So that's in me, right? There's, there's, I'm not comfortable just being one thing. Mm -hmm. I'm also deeply empathetic to the life of the artist. So next part, then I'll answer your question about rising media. Starting in 1981 to roughly 1992, we lost about a hundred friends to AIDS. And <clears throat> I lost my world. I mean, I lost all the, all the theater I, I was training to be in. I, literally, they, they disappeared. And so for me, what I've been doing in the last 20 years is really recreating my life, um, creating communities of artists, engaging with artists as a curator, as a writer, uh, even, in, even in communications. So. The book, The True, is about my experience of being in a con, uh, being conned into thinking that I had all these deals. And, and what happened because of that is that I found out that it's happening to an enormous amount of artists out there. Artists are really vulnerable right now. So with the context of understanding that it's, it's hard for artists out there, I also started to look with friends of mine at the actual creative economy, which is a $2.2 trillion economy. How do you measure that? That is that is straight out of the UN. And that that is the U, United Nations is called 2021, the year of the creative economy. And they're looking at how is it that the creative economy can help to mend and repair a post-COVID world. So that from my perspective, what my crew of people do, um, and we work right now kind of quietly with large museums, uh, with foundations and institutions, and we're going to be writing a book actually about this, is how can we really understand the real needs of the creative ecosystem, particularly for Americans and in America where we are siloed? where we're kind of lost from each other in a way. Um, we well, are... I mean, I would say that we're not only siloed from each other, but we're also siloed from the rest of the economy. Yes. And it's, it, it's terrible because it's a $2.2 trillion economy. It's 3% of the GDP of the world are creative people. And so, so we just started this this year 
And we are starting to ramp up with doing very detailed market research into the world of technology, particularly these platforms, particularly cryptocurrency, particularly NFTs, and also giving consultancy to help bridge those relationships between the institutions and the technology worlds so that it's coming, right? These new platforms are coming where artists can make money or find ways to get investment outside of the regular sources. And we just wanna make sure that there's enough information and good thinking around it um, so that everyone can thrive. Yeah, do you remember, um... I think it was in the 80s um, when David Bowie sold shares in himself. Yes, absolutely. So is that something along the lines of what you're thinking about in terms of artists being able to um, you know, uh, make a living? Well, I think artists are changing things and making a living using NFTs right now. Um, there's, a, there's a really exciting movement of young, and, uh, young artists who are just completely uh, unfazed and they're just moving forward and working on a different currency, completely different currency. Currency is based on trust, right? Currency is based on, on um, giving each other goods and services, cash when they need it. And, and the, the, the world of COVID, and particularly friends of mine in Oakland did an incredible thing. Uh, they created their own grocery store, quote unquote, and through NFTs and through this other system, they kept each other fed. Uh, so now, uh, for, 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 for the non-techies, right, NFT is yeah. non-fungible tokens yeah. based on cryptocurrency or at least the blockchain. Yeah. Um, how does, so, you know, it, in, in my world, um, an NFT would be, for instance, um, a, a baseball card of Mike Trout um, or Shohei Otani and... Yeah it being an NFT means that I know that it's like the only, it's, it, you know, it's authentic and it's the only one of its kind, right? It's one right. of one. Right. How does that translate to poetry or uh, photography or video, what have you? Well, it's, it's, it's very specific and, and extremely actionable. So when you have that NFT for a poem, for an image, it creates a, your, your own tagged license so that it can, it can, you, you don't get into these horrible contractual nightmares that artists get into. Writers, particularly. Photographers, oh, bad. So walk us through like a very specific, tangible example of how I'm a poet and I can use NFTs to feed myself during the COVID pandemic. Well, that, <laughs> that, that, would, that would be a, a soothsayer. I, I don't know about that, right? But what I do know is that we are looking at different ways of being successful in the world. Mm -hmm. We are looking at ways, and COVID is part of this. If you think about what the gig economy is, it's actually now, and, and in COVID, people saying, oh, wow, I can, I can live and survive. That's, you know, that's an amazing concept. But the rest of the country, and maybe even the world, but certainly America, is getting the, like, this gig economy thing. Yeah, that's actually the way artists live. Right. And it's not about how much money I get. It's that I have space to breathe. Right. I have space to be a human being and a, and a space inside myself to work. So it's really about shifting the idea of what success is 
And the, the idea of the blockchain is about connecting people, which is the antithesis of what we think of quote unquote success being in America, which is just market success. And it's a really, it's this kind of an isolation, right? So, so now with the blockchain, now with NFTs, now with being able to share, I think that we're going to go into a period of time where poets and writers, and I mean, Substack is one example, right? But that's not an NFT. Right. Where people are actually figuring out, oh, wow, I can actually make money on my own. That's pretty interesting. Can you explain a little bit about Sub Substack? Sure. So Substack is um, Substack is a platform for people to write newsletters. Um, and you can have people follow you. And you can have a you give a percentage of that to the platform of you know what you get. I can't remember was it three or five percent. And then you just keep writing and people are your patrons, as it were. And so people subscribe and yeah, they, they pay. Subscribe. And some people are making a ton of money doing this. And, and, that, and that's just the first of what probably will be many of, of new platforms that people can use. I mean, our perspective from, from Rising Media is we need to make sure this is informed because these platforms could be built just from the technology point of view and not from the lens of the artist. Right. Uh, we really, really, really need to understand what they need. Now, this dovetails kind of with something I wanted to ask you about the true. Sure. And something you, you said that um, you realized that a lot of artists are sort of in the line of fire or their targets for cons. Mm -hmm. And my question back to you is, since when are artists good targets from a pecuniary standpoint? I mean, yes, there was, you know, there's Stephen King, there, there are great and you know now i'm just talking about writers right there are writers who are making money from their writing the writing alone not many why would and, and and this is not intended as a slight but why would sarah kornfeld or her ilk be a good target for a con what, what, what does anyone have to gain from from or me yeah well you know i mean my 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 being part of a con was because I was really, really disconnected from myself, right? So that let's just separate it from being an artist, blah, 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 right? Um, my, okay, Trump was elected on a Tuesday. My parents went in a car on a Sunday, went into, had a car accident. My mother became quadriplegic. One month later, I got cancer. I was diagnosed with cancer. And then Duku, who I write about in the book, I found out he was going to die. So it was completely bananas. I mean, I was, I was mess. And so as a human being, I was really, really vulnerable uh, and trying to find what was good in the world. Mm -hmm. And so when this person presented herself after Duku died in such a positive way, in such a, in such a loveliness and such an, such curiosity, um, it fed what I really deeply needed. But I guess so, I mean, I have, is, to, I have to own that. But in terms of right, in terms of artists, that's why are you a good target? I mean, why don't doesn't the con artist want to like score, you know, money, not well, good vibes. I, I think in this case, it's this is also a story about modern corruption, which is that what she really wanted from me was to be seen. And what she really wanted was to convert our relationship into selfies that she would send to me every day. I didn't write about that in the book, but it's true. Um, 
she wanted to share our friendship and this imaginary world that she had that she was a, an actress and a director and she wanted that on social media so you know that's where the rub is <laughs> you know if if we're in relationships with people now that are based on social media mm -hmm. easy to become part of their curation right it's easy to become part of your narrative and to your question about why why are artists particularly attuned to a con? I think it's because we actually have we have good imagination, right? So if if you capture our imagination and and stories interesting, we'll we'll just keep talking with you. We'll just keep being into it. That that's the research that I've done. Mm. Uh, is it it our our imagination takes off? And we so we're we're so we as artists are potential targets of con artists, not for the traditional, um, you know mattress full of bills but um right. because we serve part of their larger narrative and we allow them to somehow further their career as it were yeah Is that I kind mean, of what you're saying yeah i think that's really true there's also real specifics in this that um online there's a lot of uh, false purchasing of things so you can like part of what i get into in the book is that this con artist literally went back and forth with my lawyer and created contracts, right? I thought we had contracts for business, but they were all made up. So, you know, it's it can go really deep. And mm -hmm. that's what that's what the internet, that's the danger of it. That's the danger of it. So I want to switch um, gears a little bit, although I have the feeling that everything we talk about is going to center around Couple of a couple of themes, sure. um, and, and so you've written um, one highly acclaimed novel. Um, now this book, which I'm finding to be fantastic and devastating, um, which is a hybrid of memoir, true, uh, true crime, uh, auto fiction, um, clearly aren't trying to write conventionally for conventional audiences with a conventional marketing strategy and focus groups. And um, I mean, not that writers use focus groups, but you're not, let me rephrase that. You have in your background and in part of what you do, sort of the traditional toolkit of a traditional marketer. Um, and on the other hand, you're writing um, things that are not conventional mm -hmm. and it's, you know it, it must be intentional and so my question to you is first of all how do you cobble together um a livelihood um out of all of that um and you know like literally like what are the mechanisms that you use to keep yourself on the different tracks that you have to keep track of and then um you know do you actually see a market others don't see for the unconventional. Okay. All right, so I got to go back to my my dad, who's ninety one, who's still with us, who's just the best. And uh, every once in a while, I like to tease him. Yeah, come on, dad, how do you have such a successful theater? You're such a you know, you're such a fuck up sometimes, you know. And <laughs> and and his his answer is always the same. Like you know, here's how you do it, kid. You make the play. Don't charge tickets. And that's a really important part of my upbringing. 
they didn't charge tickets. Maybe a couple bucks to get in. No one in that time of where art was being made in this really exciting, what you know, what we would look at now as, you know, multi-layered or interconnected way. They weren't really thinking about selling tickets. They were thinking about people reading. They were they wanted butts and seats. Mm -hmm. uh, they wanted to be at the right parties because there was going to be a really good singer. I mean, they're they're thinking about this was really really different. So I don't think of I don't think of what I'm writing about as ever making me a dime, which liberates me. Now, I mean. That's fine if I, if I can make money off of writing, terrific. But it's not how I'm get, it's not how I'm measuring my my sense of success. Um, and that sounds really like privileged, I guess, but not not from where I come from. From where I come from, to think about how you're going to make money off your stuff is is going to get in the way. And it was really it was very practical. Uh, way of looking at things, and it, it allowed the people that I grew up with to um, to really try stuff that's new. Now, where I'm fitting in is that there's this burgeoning, exciting, beautiful independent publishing scene right now, all over the world, and COVID has only supported that. Um, I'm being published; the truth is being published out of Bucharest. Romania out of an independent publishing house there. And I am so happy um, because they really get me. Um, the publisher worked with me really closely. So I'm, uh, let me get to the, tr the practical part of what you said. I have to make my money wearing a different hat. I make my money as a curator. I make my money as a producer. I make my money in a understanding the business world of, for marketing. And I just do that and I keep them very, very separate. That's how I handle it. And do you, so how do you divide your time? Do you sort of get up at, you know, before before o'clock and work yeah. on art then and then put on your business hat? And then... Yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm up at 4.35. Mm -hmm. I work to about eight. My kid leaves the house around eight. Um, then I do about three hours or four hours of work. Uh, then I go back and look at my revisions in the night. So it's it's more like living like an athlete in that sense. Um, it's I, I put exercise in there and things for my health. Um, and I know that I'm not necessarily going to be able to maintain this. It's just that this is this is where I've landed <laughs> in my story, you know, right. and, and so I'm just rolling with it. And, you know, maybe I've got a good eight years where I can keep this up. Um, I'm 53 now. I wasn't published till I was 50. Right. So, so I am just rolling along and I try to keep those two lives separate. You know, uh, in the prologue of The True, um, you write of your protagonist, your, um, your former lover, mm -hmm. rising from a country in ashes. He devoted himself to art, to life, to a life of art, an art of life, uh, which is um, beautiful. Um, and so, you know, I'd like to, you, you, you talk about sort of, you separate your, your persona into mm. the artist and the not artist. Mm. Um, do you think that you can be an artist 
um, and not lead an artist's life, um, which is to say, you know, an artist's life being the life where you deprive yourself of and your family, right, of many material things in service of the art. Um, do you think that in order to be an artist, you have to deprive yourself of these things or no. do you feel like you can do both? No, life should be fun. <laughs> life should be good. Life should be good. Life should be meaningful. Life should feel safe. Um, that idea of the artist being having to live in poverty is is I think a very dangerous American concept of controlling the artist. I think that, that that's a really dangerous Americanism out of Puritanism that we're sort of to be punished for being who we are. We're sort of to be punished for having an authentic take on life, right? I, I think artists should be happy. I think artists well, should, no? I, I, I don't disagree. Um, having <laughs> lived my life that way myself, um, I'm curious, um, there was part of a long-winded um, question I asked you a little while ago. Yeah. Um, I was asking you whether there is a market for experimental art, for um, experimental writing or things that are not conventional that others don't see. Mm -hmm. Is there is is there something um, if I'm a 24 year old mm -hmm. and I'm writing post postmodern fiction um, mm -hmm. and uh, everyone in the world is telling me you know you'll never make a living at this you know you're great but get a day job um, other than yeah maybe get a day job. Would you tell that person, no, keep going. There is a market for what you're doing. Yeah. Um, well, let me give you an example. Uh, first of all, yes, I do think there's, there's um, is it a market? Um, it's certainly a crew of people, <laughs> you know, right. that are, are, are doing stuff that is supportive of each other. Um, my the publicist that I'm working with is a guy named John Madera, and he is also uh, the uh, publisher of a really lovely literary magazine called Big Other. And I'm working with him, and sometimes he just like you know just crosses his eyes with frustration with me because sometimes I get all sort of marketingy. Um, and he kind of keeps me on the straight and narrow around just focusing on continuing to connect with authors that I vibe with. And that's a really almost sort of 1800s kind of way of looking at marketing yourself, which is really about community. Where's the salon that you fit in, in other words? Right. Where's the salon? And so there are salons where people are living and making work. Some of it's supported by the new platforms, and that will be probably more and more, particularly since young kids they're, they're smarter than us. Right? They're just going to figure out how to use this technology and make a living. They're going to they're going to hack the gig economy and figure out how to make it work for them. They really will. So I think the question is really like, when do we say to ourselves, I just really want to write the way I want to write. Mm -hmm. I just that's what I need, you know. And in doing that, you find friends, you know. I mean, I think there's a lot to um, the idea that writers need to be writing, need to be reading and need to be buying books because yeah. 
if 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 writers aren't buying books, no one else will. Right. And I don't think that that's any different today than it was when I was in college or graduate school. Yeah. You know, in the 1970s and 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's interesting that you keep coming back to this idea of community mm. and um, referencing your father's theater, which was a community. And I, you know, it's funny because, right, they, he didn't want to, that he didn't want, he didn't think about charging people to go to the theater. He just wanted people to, you know, to get in the seats. And, you know, I, I don't, I wasn't there then. I was, I was a child, um, but um, uh, I can imagine that today you might do the same thing, only you might be selling t-shirts um, or you might be doing things at that theater to make money because people are there. But again, you're not charging people, you know, mm -hmm. to come in. Um, mm -hmm. On the other side of the token, I find it interesting that um, more and more, you know, COVID has been kind of a parenthesis for musicians. Right. In a way, but in another way, a lot of musicians started performing online. And um, I don't know how many of them tried to get paid that way, but I think that that's a natural next step. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think the thing that COVID did was it, it's kind of a weird way to put it, because in one way we use social media to survive it, right? We shared videos and museums, the Louvre and everybody, all of a sudden they had tours, right? right. The go inside-ish and, and check out the art. Um, but I think the thing that COVID really helped us do is in a way have a kind of a breakage with our, our marketing addiction. My general feeling about what traps us in America and what traps artists is buying into the idea that marketing is art. Marketing is just a mechanism. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with selling your book and there's nothing wrong with selling tickets. There's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's neutral, it's just a mechanism. But marketing isn't life, right? Talking on Twitter is not writing. Making videos is not performing for people in, in person. It's a different mechanism. So I think that community is something we're trying to figure out. And hopefully out of the longing of COVID, you know, the longing for each other that we'll like to be together. The thing that I find really exciting with writing is uh, right now people doing things in groups. Um, more, more examples of people doing interviews, not just one-on-one, -on -one, but in groups of people reading their work and talking with each other. That to me feels really exciting. Now, you said that you didn't get published in fiction until you were 50 or so. Yeah. Um, did you discover that you wanted to be a published writer later in life or did you just not get around to it? Or, I mean, how did, how did that come about? Yeah, sure. So um, as I said, it, you know, the, the loss of, of the theater to AIDS for me was devastating. And I was, you know, I was 23 years old. I was just beginning. And so I just, I found myself feeling haunted, um, which is in all of my writing is almost always has ghosts in it. Um, and I felt like I needed to go out and learn how to be in the world. I was sort of like, 
you know, if you just sort of imagine Miranda in The Tempest, I was like her. I didn't know how to drive. I didn't know how to do anything. I was just a complete theater person. I was such an artist kid. And so I came to California and got involved with making a new world. And I needed to learn how to do that. But I was always writing, Michael, I was writing a lot of poetry. Um, I was writing a lot of short stories. I was writing a lot of essays. Uh, in my 40s is when I really got a story in my head for my first book, What Stella Sees. I was having anxiety-based seizures. And I started to get a story in my head about what would it be like if a girl woke up from her seizures and believed in an alternate ocean. And that was my hook. And that obsessed me. And I worked on that for a good seven years. I'm lucky in the sense that I have had wonderful editors in my life. Catherine Washburn, who is a great poetry editor, was a good friend of the family, and she read my work really early. And I told her, I said, I think I'm kind of a weird writer. And she was like, yeah, you're a totally weird writer. Mm -hmm. So you should just write. And I remember that, you know, she was like, don't go to school for it, just write. And then Sally Artiseris, who's been my, my editor for all of these books, uh, she's been there for me quietly. So I think that part of it is the community that I grew up in knew I was in pain, knew I was... I'd lost a lot. And so the process of writing has been there bringing me to, um, to resolution around this. So that by the time I really had a book and I was like, okay, this is who I am. This is, I'm proud of, this is, this is me. Mm -hmm. I'm ready to kind of step out. You know, it's that like, you know, that, that old Zen thing, you just, you know, you get out of your own way and all of a sudden people receive, right? Right. And, and I've been lucky in that sense. Um, getting back to the true, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think one of the most fascinating things about it is, um, and I've I've had a similar experience, not not at all to the extent that you have, but of, I guess, believing what someone is telling me, when any sane, rational, objective person could look at that and say, you know how that's ridiculous no diana I mean, ross doesn't want you to write a movie for her <laughs> i mean look, i why are we willing to be deluded well here's the thing um and this is why the the book is important that she wants to be you know she says she's an actress and a director and i come from the theater and i should know better and i am and i was conned right um some people are really good actors Really, I mean, that's that's it. I mean, some people are just really, really good actors. And they vibe off of your 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 own, like I said before, like your own imagination. Right. If 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 you tell me something crazy, and my me, Sarah, I'm listening to you and I think, oh, that's kind of interesting. And I say, oh, really? That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Tell me more. You're just, oh, then they're like, oh, yeah. And then I went to the moon. And you're like, really? You went to the moon? Yeah. And then I went to Mars. No kidding. Was it, was it nice? Was it kind of hot, dry? You know, so you get into this, <laughs> you get into this thing where you just, you're, you don't realize, but you're feeding this, the psychosis of the person that needs to make up who they are. And in the case of the true, this is also about America and Romania and the dynamics of me as an American and her as a Romanian woman who is trapped in a, in a sort of post-communist but really tough situation there. 
she doesn't have, she's not an artist like the other artists there who are beautifully trained and brilliant. I mean, some of the best actors I've ever met in my life are from Romania and they're incredibly talented and well-trained. She had nothing. So it was my, it, it's also about projection. The story of the true is also about projection, what we project on each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we find in our own lives now where how do we live through Trump? I mean, it it was a grand con and some people bought into it and some people didn't. Somewhere in all of this, we get something from being con. Here's the thing about being a quote unquote experimental writer, okay? Is if, if you're still telling a good story and you have dialogue that connects, anyone can read it. it. It, you know, I didn't, I didn't get a Master of Fine Arts in Writing, and, and I, you know, I came from a, 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 I know it seems weird, but my world, it wasn't a good thing. Right. It, was, it wasn't, it was like, well, just do it. Like, what do you, what's wrong with you? Just go out and make it, you know, be brave. Um, so what you're saying about America is really specific back to this thing around being isolated and being a quote unquote professional. And professionalism around art really got intense in the last 20 years in America, right? And it's, it's, um, it can really hold people back from being free with what they, what they write. I mean, I've read so often writers saying, wow, I, I wrote my first piece or my first novel and I was so in love with what I was doing and then I had a little taste of success and I got a taste of what the requirements were for me for being in the market and I don't love it anymore. And that to me is just so sad. You know, it's like when I, I spoke to a publicist about this book and the first question the publicist, it was a really well-known publicist. I thought, oh, this book is really strange for this, you know, this world and America. Uh, Romania was going to be fine, but here was going to be kind of weird. And and the the only thing that one talked to me about was what does the cover of your book look like? Mm-hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? What does the <laughs> what does the cover of my book look like? Like, do you want to read the book? Well, not really, because I I get it. It's like multi genre, but you know what's going? How are we going to sell it? I thought, oh man, this is dangerous. This is really dangerous. And I think that what will happen? Here's my here's what's in my heart. What I hope, Michael, is that. The more that we have other ways to support ourselves financially, right? The more that we have, hopefully, this this bubbling up, which I can see happening here and in Europe, particularly, and also in, in Asia, of the independent publishers, it could be really exciting for other people to experience what I'm experiencing, which is it's kind of cool to be published out of my country. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a different kind of challenge, right? And um, well, I'm digressing. Sorry. Well, no, but that's <laughs> touche. Let me ask you, how are you getting the book distributed here? So, so it's um, being di- distributed through Ingram, actually. I mean, even that, that used to be only self-publishing, but now the independent publishers are using it so that it can go straight to the bookstores. Um, it's Amazon right now, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's going to be in bookstores, you know, lickety split. Um, it's being sold online in Romania and it's in the bookstores there. And then it will, you know, they'll use all the platforms that they want to use. 
So now your book is coming out in three languages with three different endings, correct? Yeah. So <laughs> um, how did you work with a translator in terms of, you wrote it in English, right? Yeah, I wrote three different versions in English. Okay. And okay. so how did you, and so you just picked one to be the English ending? Well, okay. So, so I wrote it and uh, Costel Postelage, who is my publisher, he read it. And he said, you know, it feels to me like this should be in three different languages. It feels to me like you should have about 20 pages of different stuff that contextualizes your life with Duku in America and in, in Europe. And I think there should, and, and, I, and then I wrote, I, I started writing and then I wrote him a little note saying, I kind of have this, I've written this weird dream where there are all these ghosts. And he was like, oh, keep going, it's great. So I had permission from him to kind of go hog wild. Who I did. I wrote the first version for a Romanian audience. It's the tr it's the truth of the true. It's the if there's any version that anyone reads, that's the one that's the core version. Then I started to think about what did I want to include in the French version. I wrote it in English, thinking about the the place of France in our lives in 1990. The final version I wrote for the English speaking audience, and that was brutal. That was so hard because it is only in the English version that in the dream that Duku realizes he's dead. Everywhere else in the, in the other two versions, he doesn't. And also in the English version, I had to tackle talking about identity and class and race through the lens of my American eyes more specifically. So the Romanian version, we had a translator and then the, the publisher Costel, he said, I, I just, I need to do it myself. <laughs> so he trans a wonderful translator. So he translated it. And then we went with one French version, French translation, and he said, nope, I don't want to use a French person. I want to use a Romanian living in Paris to translate from the Romanian. So, so we've had this really interesting journey with this, which is like, it's a book about being lost in translation. Uh -huh. And it's ending up as a box set of translations of translations. Right. And it's not a gimmick. It's just where, it's just how we could approach the topic and approach the weirdness <laughs> i'm curious because you said that the the true of the truth yeah or the truth of the true is in the romanian version yeah but then the way you described the challenges that you had writing it in english for the english audience that that's the place where you actually came to grips with some of the more yeah. emotionally challenging things for you Yes, and I said, and I and I talk about more difficult things in it. So it sounds like that one's actually closer to the truth. Yes, maybe it is, but isn't that that's the question, isn't it? Now, <laughs> so now and then, what happens with someone? So let's say someone comes along and says, "This is great. I want to translate it into Italian." Are you going right. to write a third? Are you going to write another version, or do you right. send them to the French version? Well, there is some interest in that, so I am thinking about it. Um, yeah, I, I think I will. Because because Duca was knighted in Italy, 
and had a relationship <laughs> with Italy that was totally different. So I, you know, I, I think I would sit down and think about that difference. Or maybe you'd have um, to write a whole, a, another version. Oh God, no. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, right? We've got to move on with our lives. Yeah, exactly. Let me, so um, if you, if you hadn't been, um, I, you know, there's a question I ask everyone on this podcast, and it feels almost impossible to ask you because the question is, um, if you, if you hadn't wanted to be a writer, what would you have wanted to be? It almost feels like the answer for you is, I would have been a theater person. But I don't want to put words. In I would have ended up a writer anyway. I would have ended up a writer if everyone had not died. <laughs> and I would have been in those theaters. I would have been writing the plays. Mm -hmm. I, I think that I was always ending ended there. Um, and the language of the theaters that I grew up in. I mean, I didn't read James Joyce. I saw it on stage. I learned right. it as lines. I can still do them. So that language for me is, it's everything. It's imbued in everything. And it's just, my path has just taken me on this, this way to language. And the last question I have for you is, um, what's your relationship to physical books? Are you a dog era? Do you use bookmarks? Do you underline? Do you oh, highlight? I have to have books. I just got a book today. I just got the, literally this afternoon, I just got the essays of Toni Morrison. And I'm going to underline it. Oh. Underline <laughs> it. I, um, I'm a dog ear. I, I, I would get in trouble for dog earing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have books that stay by my bed that have always been by my bed. Mm -hmm. Like they're not, they're just a part of my life. And if I don't see books, if I'm not around them, I, I don't feel comfortable. I'm Michael Hickens, and you've been listening to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. If you want to know more about me, please visit my website at www.michaelmissing.com.